Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Kevin McCarthy is no longer speaker. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck, your other host. Yeah, we are, uh, I think, back by popular demand, but also back by, oh my God, what is going on? We felt the need to jump back in uh, and pick up in our story, which has obviously uh, escalated quite a bit since we last spoke with everybody. McCarthy's gone. We've got a new leadership race. We have a government funding deadline approaching uh, the House in pure chaos. So many dimensions to this, so many things to cover. I don't know how much time we have today, but uh, we've got a lot to, to get over, uh, to go over. Um, I guess we got to start with what happened with Kevin McCarthy this week. Um, first time in history being removed through a motion to vacate. Um, we now have a, a, a speaker pro tem, Patrick McHenry, running things. Um, you know, it, it, it felt somewhat inevitable that yeah, this I, was going to happen. I, I just want to jump in here because, Brendan, I think it's worth pointing out that I, I want to say it was like our first episode um, of Control, if not our second episode of Control, uh, a comment that you made that, you know, it was really, it was a conversation you were having with Paul Ryan, I believe, because he was our first guest, and you're both agreeing, you know, it's all going to come down to the motion to vacate. Um, so just all these months later, here we are, and uh, that all's kind of unfolded in, in front of us. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the last gives he made to the holdouts was to lower the threshold um, from what Pelosi had it at, which was, I think, the the party leaders that could only be the ones to offer it, or there had to be some higher threshold to met, be, me, uh, be met. And um, they insisted to go back to the way that it was under Boehner and under Ryan, where any one member can, can bring up the motion. Um, it did feel like the second that give was made that this day was going to come at some point. And so a lot of trying to, you know, look back, could he have done things differently? Were there things he could have done to avoid this day? I, I don't know. Um, it's easy to sort of second guess that. And I'm sort of of the mind where if it didn't happen this week, it would have happened, you know, at the end of this 45-day CR or, or whatever. And, of course, a lot of people like questioning whether he should have tried to, to deal with Democrats to, to save himself. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a notion uh, from some that there was a chance Democrats would kind of jump in and potentially save McCarthy here. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to imagine if the shoe was on the other foot for Republicans. I mean, you know, say we had a Nancy Pelosi speaker. It's really hard for me to imagine being in a in a district, uh, going back to the district after having voted to sort of save Nancy Pelosi as speaker. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if the shoe was on the other foot, absolutely. Republicans would totally kick out <laughs> the speaker. I just, you know, it's one of those things where you almost sort of expect Democrats to, to go along a little more. And I will say, I, I guess, underestimated uh, how cutthroat they could be. Um, look, and I do think just, you know, flat out, like this is bad precedent. This is bad for the institution. Um, but I guess McCarthy trying to make those arguments, pretty flawed champion for institutions at this point, um, particularly in their minds after 
January 6th and impeachment inquiries and all those things. So I think that kind of fell on, on deaf ears. I just underappreciated how much they distrusted and, and hate Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, you know, I think another element around this, though, is, I mean, McCarthy is the Republicans' best fundraiser. I mean, you know, I, I think it's certainly hard to, you know, just, I guess your your comment about cutthroat is right, but, you know, I, again, shoot me on the other foot. Like, you're not going to go and save your, uh, you know, competitor's top fundraising person. I, I just find that, you know, just kind of a struggle. Yeah, look, it, the politics for Democrats are, are great. That charade on the floor where for an hour you just had Gates and his crew arguing with the rest of the conference was tough to watch. And it just, you know, if you're a Democrat, you had to be sitting on the floor just sort of like, I cannot believe they're doing this to themselves. Um, horrible politics for, for Republicans. I don't know how much people are, are, are going to you know, be paying attention and remember that come come voting time. But clearly, Democrats are going to be making an argument that you know this is not a a party that is fit for governing that you can trust to do, get anything done. Uh, and it was a clown show on the House floor for everyone to see. I mean, I, I joked that you know it's never a good idea to show people in public what a House Republican conference meeting looks like. Usually, those are behind <laughs> closed doors, but kind of doing it out in the open and just arguing with each other. I did think that um, potentially you know, there's two ways to look at this vote. Were you voting to save Kevin McCarthy or were you voting to empower Matt Gates? And if you're voting to empower Matt Gates, I don't think anybody wants to, to do that. But they clearly saw it as just taking out Kevin McCarthy and politics absolutely work for them. I, I totally get it. I think this is like a really bad situation for the House and really um, sets a bad precedent and um, creates a lot of instability at a time when we could use some. Um, but, you know, that's not their job, I guess, to, to worry about Republican leadership. Um, and so now here we are, speakerless for the first time, and um, we'll have to pick up the pieces. Before we go on to kind of what's going to happen now, I have one sort of additional backward-looking question uh, that I want to talk through. I mean, because there, in some sense, I, I do have the feeling that a part of McCarthy thought that he would have help from Democrats. And so maybe he didn't um, feel like he needed to offer them something or to negotiate with them because he thought they might be more predisposed to to help him. Um, but do you think that if he were to have come to them with some kind of some kind of negotiation deal, I'll put Ukraine funding on the floor. I mean, do you think if he would have done something like that, we could be um, sitting here with a with a different outcome? I think he could have saved himself. Yeah. Um but I think he understood all the reasons why he couldn't do that. Um, and those are that you can't, I mean, the, the, the whole Gates play here was to have Democrats save him and be able to say that he's no longer the Republican speaker, he's the Democrat speaker, and be able to hold that against him. I actually think that Matt Gates was surprised that he's removed. I think Matt yeah, Gates thought the Democrats were gonna, gonna save him and that he would be able to just needle Kevin more, which is the whole, the whole game for him. But I think Kevin understood you derive your power as speaker from having 218 of your own party. And once you have to get your power from the minority, you're basically a dead man walking. And that's what we we talked about this yeah. months ago on, you know, that we, we, we asked the question, really interested to see how Democrats vote on this. Um, could Democrats save him? Yes. But at that point, you're you might as well just leave. And I think Kevin understood that, um, that if he had to basically... Um, have a, some type of power sharing. He would never be able to stand up in front of the conference with 
the authority that you need uh, as speaker. So, it, you know, it's one of those Aaron Sorkin style, like that, wouldn't that be nice if they all came together and worked something out? And that's just not how politics work these days. Um, so uh, could he have saved himself? Sure. But, you know, they, they would have been right back at him. 45, yeah. And then, you know, the motion to vacate can be offered many, many times. And I don't think Kevin has that many things that he could, that he could offer Democrats over and over. Yeah, that's something I wondered if if some of the folks that ended up, um, you know, voting with Gates like Mace maybe considered that they would put McCarthy back up on the floor. And then at that point, they would, you know, be able to extract something else. I mean, was that the play um, for some of them as well, in addition to just the, you know, attention seeking elements? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the just the dynamics here is this happened really fast. Um, and I, I think while a lot of people aren't necessarily surprised, there was a bit of a shell shock nature to how quickly this, this happened. I mean, Gates was talking about maybe doing it at the end of the week. He did it at the beginning of the week. Gates was talking about how he thought the Democrats were going to save him. Like, I, certainly this was on the table quickly after the CR, um, that was passed. I just, it, it seemed to, I think, catch a little people off guard. And I don't know how much people actually thought through what exactly was going to happen at this point. I mean, Gates being, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this emerging leadership race, Gates being like, oh, I'm happy with any of these other guys kind of tells me that he like caught the car and doesn't really know what to do at this point and doesn't, you know, he realizes that he's pissed off everybody in his conference and, and probably can't try to take down whoever is next up. Not to say that somebody else won't try to do that. There's plenty, like, that's what I think people don't appreciate is Matt Gates did this, but there are a lot of people who would potentially do this eventually. Um, and you saw like Lauren Boebert, when she voted no on the motion to vacate, she said no for now, which is a cute way of basically being like, if he survives this, yeah. I'm probably going to take him out in 45 days when the CR uh, expires. So, um, yeah, he, uh, uh, the, this ultimately came down, I think, to Kevin did make a lot of promises that he couldn't keep, whether it was funding levels, whether it was how the House was going to operate, a lot of things that um, a lot of Republicans um, think they want. And I, I am happy to go in. We'll talk about this later, like why we don't have 12 appropriations bills done by now. Um, but it was like things, things he had to do and say to get the job that were just never achievable. And frankly, that's just kind of part of being a Republican speaker is trying to turn into reality. A lot of these fantasies that house Republicans have couldn't do it. And then he burned so many bridges with Democrats that they weren't there to save him. And so, um, the walls were, were sort of closing in on him. And I think he kind of knew that at the end, which is why he probably didn't even reach out to Donald Trump or reach out to Democrats. He, he I think he knew his time was up. Yeah, so that brings us to today. So um, we have a couple of successors who are sort of jockeying to become the next potential speaker. Um, we have obvious front runners like Steve Scalise, and then we have Jim Jordan throwing his uh, name in the in the ring. Um, you're already seeing, you know, there's sort of a, not a very well kept secret around here that there's tensions between McCarthy and Scalise. You're already seeing McCarthy. Uh, making calls, uh, supporting Jim Jordan, and his staff apparently making calls. That's for Jim right. Jordan. Yeah, his staff are apparently making these calls, and I think you're also seeing 
um, Graves, you know, ally of McCarthy, kind of out there speaking about how he doesn't want this to just be a move up the up the rung of the ladder, um, just sort of a promotion for everybody. You know, those kinds of um, those kinds of that kind of language to me is like an indication. Uh, you know, I think McCarthy's been been kind of hesitant uh, so far to come out and and endorse a, a nominator or excuse me a uh, a successor which i think makes sense i don't i don't think people are going to really want him out in front on their behalf at this point um, but certainly behind the scenes he's going to be a power broker um, so it'll be be interesting to see if one of those two sort of remains in front or if we get um, you know a McHenry or a Graves or someone else kind of from the wings who is sort of the reluctant Paul Ryan style speaker who comes in and um, kind of kind of takes takes over the job. Yeah, so we've got at least scheduled a leadership election for next Wednesday um, and a candidate forum next Tuesday, the day before, which is typically how we do things. We, we have a, a little uh, forum where candidates come in and pitch themselves. We haven't had a top tier leadership race like this in a long time. So um, this is going to be new for for a lot of people. Um, as you said, two people have come out. I think there is a lot of skepticism that this will all be wrapped up by next Wednesday. Um, uh, some real doubts about whether either of them will be able to get 218 votes. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to kind of lean one way or another on this. I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, one of the you know, ways that you prevent somebody from getting to an 18 on the floor, of course, is, you know, you have to be willing to reject the person who emerged from the conference vote. So there will be a vote in the conference next Wednesday, uh, theoretically, or uh, I don't know if they'll do it Tuesday or Wednesday, but there'll be a vote in the conference. And that just requires a simple majority. Uh, whoever has, you know, 50 plus one percent of, of the conference is the nominee that they will put on the floor. Um, that's a much easier race to win. And then the question is, does that person have near unanimous support of the conference? I think it's worth wondering whether some of these people who just kicked out McCarthy or some of these people who held up McCarthy the first time feel like they have the space to go in and kind of run that play again. There is so much anger in the conference right now. So many people pissed off that they're in this situation um, that, you know, maybe somebody would be a little hesitant to kind of tank somebody um, that the conference just chose. We'll, we'll have to see. Um, but, you know, if there is that, that type of situation, this could go on for, for a while. Um, and I guess we can, if you want, we can get into like, what Jordan has going for him or, or what, what Scalise has going for him. But I got to think at this point, Scalise is probably the favorite. Um, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility in my mind that Jim Jordan is the next speaker. And that is a wild thing to consider. You know, five years ago, I would have, you know, laughed you out of the room if you said that. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly interesting. I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm a little hesitant um, on, on either of them at this point. I just, could kind of see a dark horse emerging, um, but. Well, the question is, do, are you saying they would emerge and win the conference vote or they sort of deadlock those people, like enough people come out and say, I'll never vote for him or I'll never vote for him. And then somebody else has to emerge. Yeah, that's what I think. I think they, they'll separate that vote, um, you know, 
neither of them being able to reach the the simple majority and then there will be a, a third party that kind of comes as sort of the yeah, agreed, where I get, agreed upon person. Yeah, I mean, where I get a little stuck on that is, so there, theoretically, there are people who would want to stop either one of these people. Theoretically, with Jim Jordan, moderates would not be happy with him. He's very hard right, very rigid, very ideological, um, bomb thrower, uh, not the type of person who probably appreciates what it's like to be in a swing district. Like Jim Jordan understands how to win a red district, probably doesn't understand how to win a purple district. And if you are a swing member, are you comfortable with Jim Jordan? Potentially not. However, those are not necessarily the type of people who are willing to stand on the floor and vote down the conference's nominee, the moderates. I've just, that, 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 that seems a little out of character. Um, so, you know, if Jim Jordan wins that race in the conference meeting, I have a hard time seeing those people blocking him on the floor. With Scalise, the people you hear most unhappy with him moving up are the quote-unquote McCarthy allies. You know, they're just, if people aren't aware, there's not, I wouldn't say bad blood, but a lot of distrust between the McCarthy and Scalise operations. There was these hints that, Scalise was going to try to challenge McCarthy at one point and you know they've worked it out and they're able to work together and it's not like this like deep-seated rivalry but there is always been a bit of distrust and that's why McCarthy has basically assembled this like shadow leadership team where Garrett Graves and Patrick McHenry are in the speaker's office more than his actual leadership team but once again McCarthy allies are still sort of, you know, your generic establishment types. And I also have a hard time seeing them going to the floor yeah. and holding out and defeating whoever the conference chose. If the conference chose Steve Scalise, after all he's been through, to stand on the floor and deny it, those they just don't feel like the type. It still feels like wherever this may break down will be those hard right folks who are going to make some demands of people and don't feel like maybe a Steve Scalise, the next person up, should win it. And it won't be Garrett Graves doing it. It will be an Eli Crane-style, you know, freshman hardliner who thinks that 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 he shouldn't step up. So um, this is totally like, again, I I I can't handicap it at at this point. Where as you said, we'll have to see if other people come along. Certainly, if both of them um, becomes clear that there are enough holdouts that both of them are going to fail. I could easily see McHenry saying, let's not hold this. Let's not go to the floor. We don't need another charade on the House floor where somebody fails to get the requisite number of votes. So one thing that McCarthy did, um, you know, when he was having some of these tough negotiations with his conference is sort of deputize Graves and McHenry to do a lot of the negotiations. Um, they, they were negotiating with Biden. They were negotiating with members of his own conference, really um, putting their stamp on some of these pieces of legislation, which, um, you know, a lot of members of the conference were not 100 percent happy with how they turned out. Um, so I think that, you know, empowered these folks, but also maybe made it a little bit harder for a McHenry or grave speaker in, in my estimation. Uh, but I do think it's interesting, you know, this is a new precedent. We've never had a temporary speaker in um, in McHenry. And I think it's going to be interesting to see just from a you know very procedural perspective of how, you know, everything is just ground to a halt in, in the House and how, um, you know, if this speaker race does sort of drag on and, you know, there is 
you know, we're going to run out of funding here in, in less than 40 days. So I guess there's sort of a big question mark to me as to how the House performs any of its business if come Tuesday they are not able to coalesce around uh, a replacement for McCarthy. Yeah, this is a really nerdy issue, but a super important one that is uh, popping off in the parliamentarian world, if that's a thing. Um, so McHenry is the Speaker of Pro Tem by nature of a, I think, 2003 law that was a post 9-11 bill that was, it was essentially a, continu- a continuity of, of government thing. You know, the speaker, something happens to the speaker, we have a vacancy, we need to be able to have somebody step in. Um, and one of the things the speaker does when they take over is they literally write out a list of, you know, if, if something were to happen to me, this is the person who should be next in line. And, and there's five people, right? I don't know the exact number. It's, it's yeah, and, and it's sort of just kind of kind of kept in a drawer somewhere. Um, and so that's how McHenry emerged as the speaker pro temp, Kevin McCarthy at the beginning of his speakership, as you said, he's you know close ally and empowered uh, empowered McHenry to to have this role. The debate now is what does this role entail? What can you do as speaker pro tem in this situation? And I think it's a really important, um, while, while perhaps uh, academic or in the weeds question actually has pretty important um, consequences how it's, how it's interpreted. So this law is relatively vague and you have a lot of people right now who are trying to read into it whether this speaker pro tem is only there for the purpose of conducting a new election for a new speaker, or does the speaker pro tem have all the authorities functionally of the speaker to carry on business of the house? Those are two very different things. Either you are just there to organize and have a you know basically preside over a speaker election, which you know the house basically went out of session as soon as McCarthy was removed and McHenry has said we're going to have a speaker election next week. Um, Or if we don't have a clear new speaker soon, can he start moving bills? Can he start allowing the floor to operate? As you noted, it's 40 something days, whatever it is to uh, the next funding deadline. And if this drags out, it feels like somebody's going to have to do something. And if we are so deadlocked on on a speaker, um, and even if it doesn't even get to that point, but we are losing lots of time to get funding bills done. Now, the parliamentarians um, seem to be advising McHenry that he only has that, that narrow authority. Um, but there is a lot of bit debate about whether and how to interpret. We, again, we've never done this before. So we are um, setting precedent here. And often the House operates on precedent, but there is no precedent for this. And so however this is interpreted and however it's carried out, I think we'll, we'll, have, we'll stand for, for a long ter- period of time. Um, I am of the view, and I'm certainly not a parliamentarian, I am of the view that it is somewhat absurd to think that we passed a continuity of government law that puts in a speaker pro temp only for the purpose of electing a new speaker. I mean, in the context in which that law was passed, post 9-11, it was... If something terrible were to happen and Congress needs to act, we need to have somebody in that chair. Um, the idea we, you know, if, if we needed to declare war on somebody or we needed to, you know, do something dramatic quickly, the idea that we would have to pause and have a leadership election seems absurd to me. 
So it certainly seems to me that the intent of the law would have been to allow McHenry to bring up legislation. Um, now, it may be, maybe have been written as such that that's not what it says, uh, but it seems to me that that's unclear, and there's a lot of debate going on about it. So that's just something to really keep a close eye on. Maybe this will go smoothly next week, and we'll have a new speaker, and it won't really matter. But as of now, the House is completely frozen. Of course, they're out of uh, session, but also like bills that have been introduced aren't even like being referred to committee. No one is doing anything. And if that continues for uh, weeks and weeks to come, there's all kinds of things that you have to consider. I mean, there are functions of the House that rely on the speaker. And if you're basically saying the speaker is powerless, um, things could fall apart quickly. Subpoena authority. There's a thing called the, the BLAG, the Bipartisan Leadership Advisory Group where if the House needs to take legal action, um, it is the Speaker, the Minority Leader, Majority Leader, Minority Whip, Majority Whip, and if that like deadlocks at a 4-4 because the Speaker can't vote, like there's all kinds of stuff that you have to think about. Um, and so we're setting an important precedent, it's, um, and the longer a leadership fight drags out, the more important it will be whether or not McHenry can actually act as a real Speaker, or if he's just supposed to hold a gavel over a leadership election. So keep an eye on that, really important question. Yeah, it seems hard to imagine that um, really nothing is going to be done if this drags out. It seems hard to picture that. Yeah, I mean, and maybe this is a good transition into the sort of the next deadline that is coming. Um, but you know, the the forty five day CR that Kevin McCarthy, you know, gave up his speakership over, which is kind of crazy to even say. And I know there's a lot more to it than that, but. Um, that was a tight deadline to begin with, that they were going to be able to fund the government. Um, I just don't think people necessarily appreciate enough how completely far apart the House and the Senate are on funding the government for the long haul. And that November 17th deadline is big trouble, whether it's, yeah. you know, whether we can fund the government. What, uh, we're just sort of nowhere right now, and the clock is ticking. Yeah. And you can also put me down as someone who is extremely curious about the other names on that sealed envelope. <laughs> um, but another thing I want to go back to is because I, I mean, so we have these 45 days, um, you know, less than that now, but I mean, doesn't, isn't your sense that this just all happens again if the uh, incoming speaker isn't able to potentially change the rules? So like something that I think is interesting is, um, you know, it's going to take a full, floor vote to change the rules. So if if a speaker, an incoming speaker, say conference agrees, um, say it's a Scalise, he comes in, um, you know, he really doesn't have much bargaining power, in my estimation, to change the rules that McCarthy agreed to. And, you know, in fact, may have to make other concessions in order to get support from his conference. So, you know, we're really putting the speaker in the in sort of the same position like i know mcconnell was out uh in front saying that you know the house members really need to get rid of this motion to vacate yeah i don't disagree i'm just i guess struggling to see a scenario in which an incoming speaker is able to negotiate uh to to change the rules without um, going to Democrats and saying, you know, hey, maybe in exchange for Ukraine funding again, you know, a couple of you vote with me. Um, <laughs> Brendan is grimacing at me. But, you know, I mean, I don't really see 
another way. I, I don't see the, these Republicans willing to dilute the rules that they, um, you know, uh, had had given to them uh, when McCarthy came in. Yeah, certainly none of these people running for speaker could make that deal and still become speaker. Um, you couldn't start off that way. In fact, Jim Jordan, the, the opposite, is saying he's not going to bring up any Ukraine funding. Um, but there are a number of House Republicans who are saying they're not going to vote for anybody until this rule is changed, the motion to vacate. Um, I, I, of course, and been long said the motion to vacate needs to go away. It's terrible. And we'll, we will end up in this situation again if we don't get rid of it. I just don't see how it happens. I don't see, um, you know, to change that rule, you need 218 votes. Uh, I can't imagine Matt Gates and his crew and probably more than just those eight people. I can't imagine them giving that up for nothing. Um, this this is what empowers them. They ha- this what this is from from this one rule, they get so much authority in the house and, and are able to push around the speaker. Why would they why would they give that up? Um, and so I, I have a hard time seeing that. So yeah, you would need Democrats, but Democrats aren't going to give you that for free, even if they agree with it. We've seen they're not going to you know make life easy for somebody. Um, so uh, I am certainly of the view that this rule is going to stay in place um, and that whoever comes in next, yeah, is going to be facing the the very same threat. Now, maybe just by nature of like, again, not wanting to go through this again, do does the next person get a little breathing room? Do they get a little chance? Do they get to say, well, you, you know, I came in in this terrible situation, throw McCarthy under the bus, you know, he put us in this spot, you got to like, give me a chance to dig out of it. And um, can they do some things that otherwise would be fatal and, and get away with it? Probably. Um, but you know, that only lasts for so long. And at, at some point, if you have to do some big bipartisan deal, I imagine we'll be, you know, right back here talking about this again. Yeah, I mean, or maybe, you know, some of the retribution follows. I mean, I don't know how quickly some of these um, these measures can, are going to be done, but I, I think, you know, Lawler's going to continue to push to expel Gates from the conference. I mean, I could see, you know, Biggs and Gates and um, some others, you know, experiencing some continued challenges and yeah to maybe position. i mean they can't kick all of them out of the conference um you know you need a majority um and uh i, I just don't know how much that the, the the functional effect of kicking gates out of the conference is he can't come to conference meetings which i'm sure he won't mind um and he wouldn't be on committees uh which i'm sure he wouldn't mind i not, not exactly a policy guy um so you know i i that may well happen. You know, it requires two-thirds of the conference to vote somebody out. It would be pretty extraordinary. Um, certainly seems within the realm of possibility, but I also don't think it changes anything because ultimately the motion to vacate is a rule of the House, and you would need to Still bring it up. Still have to change the rule in the House. house. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like those guys are going to be unpopular for a while, but they're not going to give up what makes them have have power. And I, one thing i just like to remind people, it's not just Matt Gates. There are lots of people out there who are very okay playing with this tool, this weapon, and holding it against speakers. So going into the next couple of weeks, um, let's talk a little bit about what we can expect. I know we have um, seen, we've all kind of seen the House calendar. They're going to, assuming if if we get through the speaker's election next week or the following week, continue to move House appropriation bills to the floor. Um 
But I just think, you know, as I said earlier, I just think we're in the same position. I mean, I, I just don't see anything changing. In well, the word, I mean, so let's just like back up where we are. And I, I think it's important to maybe talk through um, what led us to this moment that theoretically is all around funding the government. And this is actually kind of what like drives me more crazy than anything um, as it relates to Matt Gates. So we had to do a 45-day CR because nobody had, fun nobody had done their work to pass appropriations bills and fund the government by the end of the fiscal year. That is not a new dynamic. We've been f falling short of the deadline for, for years and years and years. And, and he makes the argument that we need to stop doing that. We need to get our work done and, and all that. Um, I would put that it is... Matt Gates and his friends are the very reason why we were not able to do that. And the fact that he was able to stand up in front of the House for so long and rail against our inability to pass single subject, as he calls them, uh, appropriations bills, which are not single subject. They cover vast uh, areas of the government, even in, when they're divided by 12. But anyway, this was supposed to be the year where we were able to get this done. Kevin McCarthy negotiated a deal with Joe Biden to set spending levels for the next couple of years. That was supposed to be a glide path to allow, to basically settle the hardest questions. How much are we going to spend? And from there, the appropriators can always, can always figure it out. It was conservatives in the House who said, we don't like that. They didn't like the debt limit deal and said, we can't go by that deal on our appropriations and forced Kevin McCarthy to come off of the agreement and write House appropriations bills at levels dramatically lower than that deal. Now, yeah, talk about not sticking to your promises. And it's one of the reasons why Democrats said they, they couldn't trust him. But it wasn't McCarthy wanting to abandon that deal. He fought for that deal very hard. He just got pushed into it. Now, he kind of went along with it at, at some point because that was you know where the conference was. And I guess he's within his right to say, you know, we're, this is just our starting position. But the point is, the hardliners insisted on spending bills at levels that were never going to happen. They insisted on loading them up with policy riders that were never going to happen and made it so that even though in a year where we have this bipartisan agreement on what spending bills should look like, we don't go through that bipartisan process. Appropriations have basically fallen apart ever since they stopped being a bipartisan exercise. I think I said this before. It's this, you know, the the old uh, saying that there are Republicans, there are Democrats, and there are appropriators. Appropriators used to always go across party lines. They would write bills. They would defend their product on a bipartisan basis on the floor, and that's how things would get done. Ever since, and this is not a new dynamic, but ever since we have insisted that appropriations be a partisan exercise. You just end up in a situation where only Republicans will vote for them, and then Republicans add things that make it hard for some of their colleagues to vote for them, and you just simply can't get bills off the floor. And so you end a fiscal year having only passed one single bill. And so, of course, we have to do a CR. But it wasn't Kevin McCarthy's indifference to this. It wasn't because he didn't want to do single-subject appropriations bills. He's been trying. In fact, he got a debt limit deal, which was supposed to be what set the stage for this. It was Matt Gates and his friends rejecting that concept and insisting on bills that have no chance in hell of becoming law ever, and then turning around and saying, why haven't we done our work? Well, we haven't done our work because you didn't allow us to do our work. And so now the House has passed a handful of the bills, but they're not 
you know, at levels that are going to become law. The Senate is still trying to figure out how to do theirs. Uh, and we're going to end up at this new deadline with not much more progress here. And so we're going to need another CR. I do think it is important for whoever the next speaker is to kind of have that conversation with the conference. Hey, look, we have just, you know, burned through a few more weeks. 45 days was always going to be tight. I need some time to figure this out um, and buy himself some more time for a CR. But at the end of the day, this doesn't necessarily change the the, the problem. The House and the Senate are a million miles apart, and whoever the next speaker is is going to have to engage in some kind of bipartisan negotiation that's going to end up looking a lot more like what the Senate did than what the House did. And there again lies in the challenge of when you have to fund the government, when you have to do a debt limit style bipartisan deal, is that fatal for the next speaker? And you if know, there's you, a motion to vacate rule, yeah. then yes. So like, why would you, I, this is like, it, to me, it's like a red flag if you want to be speaker. Yeah. Wait, what do you, why? <laughs> or want to be member of Congress. Yeah, like having that balcony is sweet, but it is not worth like, you know, going through all of this pain. Um, so I don't know how this resolves itself. Like, I don't know if we end up having to do a CR for a year. And then there's that whole weird concept of the, CR being like a 1% cut that we can get into next time. But the funding situation is still totally screwed. And it is going to, again, have repercussions for the next speaker and their ability to even just stay in the job. So last CR, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up uh, a little bit about what happened last time the Republicans brought up the CR. Um, they brought it up very quickly, and Dems were, you know, of course, frustrated that they didn't have uh, at least, I think they were asking for 90 minutes to review the legislative text. Um, so in response to that, and I'll, I guess I'll throw in here an allegedly, uh, before I say this, uh, Representative Bowman pulled uh, a fire alarm in the, I believe it was the Cannon House office building. Indeed. Uh, on a Saturday, which... I will say as someone who, you know, worked in those buildings for a long time, the the one thing I will say in his, uh, I'm not going to call it his defense, but I will say it can be confusing when some of the doors in the house office buildings are not open as they typically are. But I have never myself inadvertently pulled a fire alarm uh, in response. Yeah. Let's not pass judgment on um, uh, whether it was, well, I will pass judgment. It was really dumb. Uh, but, uh, I don't think we, yeah, we couldn't get through this podcast without at least, uh, dunking on him there a little bit, but more to the point, maybe how they handled the said crisis after, uh, the alarm was pulled. Um, Annalise and I, uh, obviously are communications professionals, uh, here at seven letter, really bad crisis comms, yeah, uh, yeah. across the board, <laughs> like top to bottom by his team. Yeah. You're, you're, F-. I mean, first figure out exactly what happened before you start firing off half-baked statements that just raise so many more questions raise more questions i think the first one was they apologized for any confusion <laughs> confusion was a weird way to put it um and then you you know you've got the office sending out a statement and then you've got him tweeting out something else uh i mean he should be in these situations i guess just like the first thing like you should not be having a staff member send out a statement on your behalf on something that you've done like that just looks a little bit um strange to me when it's something of this kind of caliber like you you need to you need to answer yourself the congressperson needs to say you know here's what i did 
you know, whatever, whatever you, you've decided your line is, your response is, like kind of covering behind a staff member, like right from the beginning, I thought was like a really sketchy move. And it's insufficient. And so you're going to have to do it in another statement later. And so all you end up doing is having like the drip, drip, drip of it. Um, and then, of course, there were the talking points. Yeah. I mean, what, it, you know, rule number one, like don't continue the story. Um, and that's sort of exactly what they did here. Um, it, releasing, you know, pages and pages of responses, invoking Nazis. Rule number two, don't use Nazi. Ever. Yeah. Um, so complete fail on his part. Um, and I imagine this is not the, the end of that story. Um, Republicans, I'm sure, will be happy to, to keep bringing that up. But um, bad comms for anybody uh, out there um, wondering that was, you know, it will be, I think it will be held up as an example uh, for a long time of what, what not, what to, not do. to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, here we are, you know, I think we all are, we watching very closely what happens next in the, in the leadership election. Maybe the only last thing I wanted to, to flag was just the, the issue of Ukraine. Um, this is, uh, obviously a big deal. It is, it was, it was a big part of the, the CR debate. Um, you know, it felt inevitable at some point that Ukraine was going to have to come off of a CR. It just became such a flashpoint that you wouldn't be able to do it on such a short-term thing. I don't know why Chuck Schumer, you know, offered this as um, the off-ramp for McCarthy when McCarthy couldn't accept that. Um, but point being, um, the CR didn't do anything to to fund Ukraine. I think the House's ability to process anything on Ukraine going forward is very much in doubt the senate is like all aboard ready to do something but the thing i'm watching most in terms of these speaker candidates and how they talk about it is i am certain there are going to be some people on the house side who say i will only vote for a speaker if you promise to never support ukraine again and that is a really dire situation and something to really keep uh, a close eye on mccann or excuse me scalise Jim Jordan, excuse me, has already said he's against funding Ukraine. I think he's tried to walk that back a little bit in terms of like whether they would originate something. Um, but that is something to keep a, a really close eye on. Um, going to be going to be really tough. Um, if it feels like you know we, we've talked a lot on this podcast about discharge petitions, this thing that almost never works. Um, I mean, this is a year for press for a, a new precedent being set. I do think that Ukraine may be one place where you could get a discharge petition because I do think a majority of the House does want to support Ukraine. Um, still big lift, you know, they almost never work and you'd have to get a lot of Republicans being willing to put their name on something that has become unpopular with the base. Um, but we'll have to keep a very close eye on both how these candidates talk about Ukraine and then what are the actual legislative, um, vehicles. Yeah. That, that the house and Senate are processing that, that could potentially be a vehicle for that. So, um, that is, um, underlying a lot of a lot of what we're going to see over the next few weeks yeah i think you're right um a discharge petition doesn't seem like the craziest thing um that could happen with respect to ukraine funding i i put it at like a 20 percent chance that anything gets done on ukraine at least uh, with with the rest of this calendar year well maybe let's wrap up there um uh let's throw this out here annalise who will be the next speaker of the United States House of Representatives as you sit here today in the non-Donald Trump category? 
Um, you know, I think I'm going to go with the dark horse. I'm going to go with McHenry. I, th- I think it's just somebody else is going to emerge. Wow. Okay. Um, I am going to, I still think if I had to bet today, I would bet Steve Scalise. Um, I would not bet a lot on that. But I think as of right now, um, Steve Scalise has got to be got to be the favorite. But I could absolutely see this thing falling apart and needing some type of caretaker. Consensus. Speaker. Yeah. I don't think consensus exists. But caretaker, short term, something or other. But um, all right. Well, this has been awesome. Um, jumping back on uh, and, and getting into this. I think we will continue this story and, and probably... Um, be back next week to follow up on, on what happens. Maybe we will have a new speaker, maybe we will not, but um, it's been a great theme of this podcast. So um, certainly we will be following closely as I know all our listeners will. Yeah, thanks everybody for joining this week's episode of Control. Talk to you next week. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.